The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. If you would, to take a copy of the scripture. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 40 in a moment. We're going to work our way from Genesis 40 to 45. We're going to draw application to the gospel as we have each week in our study through Genesis. Then we're going to respond by the receiving of the Lord's table together. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's one under a chair close by you. I really encourage you to follow along with an opened Bible today will help you to clue in. This is a big, long portion of scripture. It really confines one segment of the story of, of, Jake, of Joseph. And I want us to, to try to focus in on how this story unfolds and why it is here in the scripture the way it is. Now, let's just be honest. If you know anything about your Bible, you know that what's going to happen is Joseph's going to rise to prominence in Pharaoh's house and take a very important place in Egypt. And if you've ever watched on television or heard someone preach, you likely have been influenced by some version of prosperity gospel as it relates to this text that God wants to make you powerful, rich, and famous. That is not the point. And that is an unfaithful use of what God is doing in Genesis 40 to 45. In fact, the Bible is going to tell you why it's here. And we'll see that as we work through the text today. So I want to pray for us and ask God to lead us as we set our hearts on him. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy word. You have once and for all given it to us and we are to read it, to study it and to proclaim it. There's none of it that is worthless or unimportant. It is all crucial. So help us today and our finite minds to see what is infinitely great, to see the glory of the gospel, to see the hope of Christ that is found here in this text to lead us, God, into how you would transform our lives as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you that are jumping in midstream in the story of Genesis, let me just quickly bring you up to speed. Jacob had 11 sons, now 12. At the point he had 11, the 10 brothers sold the youngest son, Joseph, into slavery. He ends up a slave from Israel or Canaan in Egypt. He first is a slave in Potiphar's house where he has risen to influence. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of a sexual sin and Potiphar throws him into prison. Not just any prison, it's Pharaoh's prison. So when we start chapter 40, we find Joseph in Pharaoh's prison. We're going to see him become an interpreter of dreams. He's going to rise to power in Pharaoh's house. And during a time of famine, God's going to use him to provide for Israel. So what I want you to see as we move through this text is that the Lord God sovereignly saved and provided for the family of Israel through Joseph. So let's start in chapter 
40. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I've put an outline and notes here, and I'm probably going to frustrate you real detail-oriented people that I didn't say that point. I'm telling you a story. So try to just follow with the outline, pick up where I'm at. I'm mainly going to work through my open Bible and work through this as we uh, unfold this story. So in chapter 40, he's in prison. And it says, The cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. Now we're totally connected to Pharaoh. We got two very important people, cupbearer and and the baker before him. Both these guys have a dream as you proceed through chapter 40. Verse eight says, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Now, let me just say this from the onset. How Joseph handles dreams is descriptive. The Bible's describing something very unique that Joseph does. It is not prescriptive. That does not mean that you go out of here interpreting what we're reading today is that you now are an interpreter of dreams. Okay, that is not the point. That is not a spiritual gift that it continues in the New Testament church. You're not a dream interpreter. All right, let's keep going. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up his head and restore you, I'm in verse 13, to your office and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were in a cupbearer. So this is interpreting the cupbearer's dream. Cupbearer has an important job. He drinks out of the king's cup before he drinks. What's he looking for? Poison. So he's protecting the dude's life. Dangerous job to say the least. So he says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get restored. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so to get me out of the house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the, what is the word? Pit. Notice the pit theme. Put his brothers throw him in a pit. Now you got Joseph in a pit again. He's saying, I didn't do any of this. I didn't deserve any of this. My brothers have sold me into slavery. I'm falsely accused here in prison. Please appeal to Pharaoh on my behalf. Then he interprets the baker's dream. This doesn't go well. You're going to be hung, he says. So we come to verse 20. On the third day, when it was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up his head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker. That does not mean he beheaded them. Among his servants, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand and he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, as you move into chapter 41, as Joseph is about to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, you need to understand two years have passed. So from the moment of interpreting the cupbearer and the baker's dream, Two long years passes, then Pharaoh has two dreams. So you see this series, two dreams of Joseph in chapter 37, two dreams of the cupbearer and, and the baker, and now you got two dreams of Pharaoh. Now, <clears throat> has to do with cows and sheaves. It says, Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And I find this astounding. If you studied Egyptian culture at all, you know there were very spiritual people. Everything was designed around some form of spirituality and nobody's willing to step forward and inter interpret these dreams. The cupbearer, this is verse nine, the cupbearer says, ah, I've done a dude wrong. There was this Hebrew when I was in jail 
who interpreted a dream and, it ex- and what he said happened exactly the way he said it. Pharaoh says, bring the dude here. I want him to interpret my dreams. So they quickly go out and get him, verse 14. They bring him out of, do you see it? The pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. That means he smelled bad. He was not dressed and he had not been shaven. He was truly in prison. So don't you think he has some kind of cushy job down there in prison, everything's going well with him. This man was suffering in prison. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said to you that you hear a dream you can interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, now he's going to describe it. I was standing on the banks of the Nile, seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and ugly and thin, such as I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing in one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And it was told... I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh is about to do. Now, folks, the Bible repeats stuff sometimes. You need to get it. This is a repeated phrase. You're going to see it just again in a moment. I'd note this in my Bible. The good cows, the seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years and the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up after the seven years and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt, but after that there will arise seven years of famine and all uh, of the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by the reason of famine that will follow for it will be very severe. So everybody's going to forget that we had seven great years. It's going to be that bad. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God. This is going to happen and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select wise, a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Pharaoh says that is a great idea. Verse 38, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this to whom there is the spirit of God? Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. So he puts him over his house. He rides second chariot. He gets the signet ring. That means when his signature is just as good as Pharaoh's. He's placed over the responsibility during the seven years of plenty to to store up grain. In verse 49, it says he stored it up in a great abundance like the sands of the sea until he ceased to measure it for he could not be measured. Now, he's placed in charge. If you'll notice when you read through this, and I'm not gonna go through all the detail, he's basically treated like an Egyptian. He's given an Egyptian wife. Who's, her father is a priest in the Egyptian uh, religion. He's given a new name. I'm not going to butcher it. It's in verse 45. He's given an Egyptian name, but then they have two sons. 
And it's one of those moments, just as details thrown in there in the Bible, and this would be worthy of spending time on, but I just want, to, want you to see it. He has two sons. Their names are, you know what they are? Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh means forget, Ephraim means fruitful. He defines it for you. He says, for God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. And Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And you say, why is that important, Jeff? Because these names have meaning and they're not just some meaning, they are Hebrew meaning. They are meaning that, that is speaking to the God of the Bible, to the Lord God himself. And these names are Hebrew names. So even though he appears to be Egyptian, he still firmly is holding on to his faith and his identity as to who he is. Verse 56. When the famine had spread over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Well, if you know anything about your map, about how the world is laid out, right next to Egypt is now what is modern day Israel. This famine is everywhere. And as a result, Joseph's family in Israel or Canaan are struggling and suffering. So Jacob, who is the head over Israel, even his name Israel, says there's grain in Egypt. So he assembles his boys and sends them to Egypt, but he leaves Benjamin, the youngest, at home. And this is a wise move because they have, he's already lost one son, Joseph. Now we pick up in verse five or six, excuse me, and it says, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Now, is that significant? It's extremely significant because his first dream in Genesis 37 is that his brothers are gonna bow down before him. Now, this is just one time you're gonna see this happen over and over again where his brothers are gonna bow down to him. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from? He said, they said from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies for you have come to see the nakedness of the land. In other words, you're seeing if we're vulnerable where you can attack us. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servant have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Ha ha. Nah. If anybody knows these guys are not honest, it's the man they're talking to. His whole life has been the result of the lies and the deceit that these boys have done. And here they stand saying, we are honest men. Now, this accusation of a, of a spy is one of several tests that jo Joseph puts on his brothers. He says, to prove to me you're not spies, go get your younger brother, Benjamin, and bring him back to me. Now, what Joseph really wants to know is Benjamin's still alive. Well, they won't volunteer to do that. So he says, somebody go get Benjamin. No one volunteers. This is verses 16 and 17. He says, okay. If nobody's gonna to volunteer to go get Benjamin, then one of you stay here and everybody else go get Benjamin. Nobody volunteers, so he seizes Simeon. Now I want you to look in verse 21 and 24 and all this story. Now God has a purpose for this story. 
But there's a secondary theme that's going on here and I don't want you to miss this. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen to him. Now this is giving you an insight back into chapter 37. The day they draw him up out of the well, and I would say even before that, when they're threatening to kill him, when they draw him up out of the pit and they sell him to the Egyptians, you need to hear the screams and cries of a 17-year-old boy in distress begging his brothers not to do this. And at this moment, that's what they're remembering. Send one of you and let me, excuse me, Lost my place there. Shouldn't have looked up. Uh, <clears throat> what verse am I on? 22. There you go. Thank you very much. Reuben answered them. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. You see, Joseph, to keep this lack of them figuring out who he is, keeps speaking through an Egyptian Hebrew interpreter, interpreter, but he fully understands everything they're saying. And then it says, then he turned away from them and wept. For the first time he realizes, my, my brothers are sorry for what they've done to me. And you think this, this man's lived with this now for years in a foreign place with all this stuff that's happened to them. And he finally hears, at least for a moment, that there's some form of remorse. So he sends them back with sacks of food, puts their money back in their sacks, which makes it look like they've deceived and actually stolen the money, and sends them back to get Benjamin. There's a lot there in the rest of 42. End of the story is this in chapter 42. Jacob won't let them take Benjamin back, and I don't blame him one bit because they just return without who? Simeon. So every time these boys go off, they come back with one less son. And he's like, no way, you're not taking Benjamin. But hunger has a way of changing somebody's mind. Because in chapter 43, it says, the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said, go again and buy us a little food. And what's going to happen in chapter 43 is Judah now is going to emerge as a leader. <clears throat> and he speaks up as, even though he's the fourth son, he speaks up to do the right thing here. And he pleads with his father to send Benjamin with them. And he promises his own life and even the life of, of his sons. So Jacob relents in verse 13 and says, take also your brother and arise and go again to the man and may God Almighty grant you before mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, I am bereaved of my children. I am bereaved. So they return with Benjamin to Joseph. Now Joseph basically is going to throw a party or a meal for these men. So I'm picking up in verse 26 after this has been set up and it says, Joseph came home and they brought into the house the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man with whom you speak, is he still alive? 
Now, Joseph's not being friendly here. He really wants to know, is my dad still living? They said, your servant, your father is well and he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Again, they're bowing before him. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and wept there. So again, he's overcome with emotion. They, they, have, they have actually done right by my little brother. There he is in my face. So they have a meal and favoritism comes out at the very last verse, verse 34. Benjamin gets five times what everybody else does. They don't clue in to what's going on. He sends them back with sacks of food again, but this time he puts what in Benjamin's sack? You remember? Silver cup, his cup. Makes it appear as if Benjamin swipes Joseph's cup while they're there. So they get off, the brothers figure this out. There's a silver cup in Benjamin. Now, the old brothers back here would probably said, you idiot, you're going back. But that's not what they do. We're told in verse 13, they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. So you see a solidarity finally of the brothers. They all go back together to appear before Joseph. Now, when they get there, Judah is again gonna take the lead. Now, Judah does something very specific and very significant. And I want you to see if you can figure out what this is pointing you to as I read you through this. What we, shall we say to my, to my Lord, verse 16? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. In other words, he's going all the way back to what they did to Joseph. God's figured out what we've done. God knows what we've done. We're being punished for this. We are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand this cup has been found. So he pleads. Please let Benjamin go back. My father's gonna die if you don't, verse 30. Therefore, as soon as I came to your servant, my father and the boy is not with us, then his, his life is bound up in the boy's life. As soon as he sees this boy is not with us, he will die and your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to shield. You keep asking about our dad, is he still alive? He's saying this, if you send us home without Benjamin, our dad will die. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father saying, if you do not bring him back, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Here's what he's saying. I, I've told my dad, this is on me. If Benjamin doesn't come back, it's on me. And watch what Judah does here. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What's Judah offering? Put me in place of Benjamin. You don't need to miss this at all, friends. Who's the seed coming from? Judah the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one that is going to take our place. 
Judah here is pointing you to the one who's coming. The one who is willing to take the place of his brother here in this moment. Now this overwhelms Joseph. Remember, Judah's the one who said, sell him. Sell him into slavery. Now you see a complete turn in Judah's life here, offering, willing to lay himself down. So Joseph now erupts. But what you're going to see in chapter 45 is that it is the Lord God who provides for the family of Israel through Joseph. It is God who sovereignly is preserving life on earth. And it is God who overcomes this crisis of famine, who is prepared to deliver, who would save his people and all the world. Chapter 45, then Joseph could not control himself for all that stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made, made by himself, when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it in the household and a Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? In other words, I'm not sure I still believe you guys, but now I believe you. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, now we're getting to the reason. Here's why this is all happening. God sent me before you to preserve life, not just for you. If you look carefully, God, God is providing for the world here. He's supplying for people. God sent me before you to provide life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years when there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Now verse seven through nine is the core. This is why Genesis 40 to 45 is in the Bible. Here's the answer. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all of his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus your son Joseph, God, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. And that's what follows in the rest of chapter 45. Here's what you need to see, friends. Through Joseph, God was doing something very specific. Here's why this elongated story is in the Bible to tell you how when Israel, at this point, and you're gonna get this next week in better detail, at this point, Israel is 75 people. That's it. God goes to this incredible expanse to protect 75 people. Because from these 75 people is coming the seed. You see, friend, God was not just providing for a physical famine in Egypt. God at that moment was sovereignly providing for the spiritual famine that you live in today. God was providing for you a savior who is Christ the Lord.
He was providing the means in which the Savior would come. Quote, in short, God sent Joseph to Egypt, not to become rich and powerful, but to preserve the promised seed and to ensure the salvation of God's people. Praise be to God. So we live, we live in a time of spiritual famine. This has been true since the garden. This has been true since the very beginning of Genesis chapter three. The Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God says also that he has provided for the spiritual famine, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Now I know I'm moving fast, but here's what I'm doing. I'm drawing parallels. We are comparing, we're contrasting what was happening with Joseph and how this points us to the gospel. I stated to you a couple of times, the Lord God sovereignly saved and provided for the family of Israel through Joseph. But here's what you need to hold on to today. This is what the whole Bible's pointing to, that the Lord God sovereignly saves and provides for his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah spoke hundreds of years before Jesus came and he prophesied specifically to what Christ was going to do and he states this prophecy as a done deal. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him with a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, I don't know if you understand what's going on there, but here's what God's saying I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide one who is going to bear the sins of humanity. He is coming. Now turn with me to Matthew 20. Jesus Christ comes. That's what the gospels, that's what the New Testament is presenting to you. That this one Isaiah and others promised has come. And don't miss this. Here's the difference between Joseph and Jesus. Question. When, when do you think Joseph figured out what he explained to them in chapter 45? You know when I think he figured it out? Right then. Or sometime right in that vicinity. He didn't figure it out in a pit in the Goshen Desert. He didn't figure it out in Potiphar's house. He may have started piecing it together when the whole dream was Pharaoh, but when his brother stood there in front of him, he saw what God was doing. But you hear this, friend. When Christ the Son came, he knew exactly why he was here. Amen. And he knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew exactly what it was about to transpire for him. 
What you have in Matthew chapter 20 is the third time Jesus has explicitly said to his disciples. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. And Jesus knew all would not be lost here. He knew what awaited him. He knew the agony of the cross that was coming, but he also knew the power of the resurrection. Turn to chapter 26. So the night before he was betrayed, before he was crucified, Christ assembled his disciples in an upper room. And it says in verse 26, and now while they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, which had been given thanks, and he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. I'm about to fulfill Isaiah 53. And here's what you're gonna do from now until I come again. You and all my followers are gonna remember what I have done in a very physical, tangible way. You're gonna receive of the bread and you're gonna receive of the cup and it's gonna remind you of my body broken and my blood poured out. Now here's the problem, maybe overstatement. Here's an issue that several of you have in your Christian faith. Here's one of the hangups a lot of you have, that the Christian faith is all about the past. Wrong. Because Jesus is saying here, when you gather at my table, you not only remember what has happened, this crucial event of your salvation, here's what else you do. You remember what is yet to happen. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I don't know if you've ever thought this before, but when you come here to remember, you're remembering two sides. You're remembering what Jesus has done and you're remembering what Jesus is about to do. He's about to seal the deal, friends. Christ is coming. He is coming for one people, his people. And he will assemble his people for all of eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. And there is coming a day, a great banquet, when he himself will serve us. So until that day, we remember what he has done. We remember how the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We remember that Christ has laid down his life on our behalf and it was the sovereign plan of God to provide for his people. So here's my question to you. Are you trusting the provision of Christ alone for your salvation? Are you trusting in him and him alone to save you? I want you to bow your heads with me.
There's some of you sitting in this room right now in front of me who sinned openly, blatantly, and without remorse over the last 24 hours. That is certainly not the fruit of a Christian. And if you proclaim to be a person who is trusting in the provision alone of Christ, then you need to repent of the works of your flesh and turn from your sin. There are others of you in this room who are despairing out of fear and doubt because of what is happening around you and in the world. That too is sin. And that is a failure to trust in the Lord Jesus and you need to repent. Friend, we don't just come to the table in repentance. We come in rejoicing. We come, as Isaiah said in chapter 55, we come and we buy with no money because we can't purchase it. We come rejoicing, receiving what freely Christ has offered to us. Here's what we're saying in communion. Jesus, only Jesus can save me. We're not saying that the receiving of this bread and this cup saves me. We're saying that only Christ can save me. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would press in on the hearts and minds of every person in this room. I pray for the person who is outside of the faith, who is not a follower of Jesus, that they would repent of their sin right now and confess their need for you and cry out to you for salvation. I pray for those, Lord, that have wondered, their heart has wondered, that you would bring them to repentance. And I pray that for every believer, you would bring us to the moment of rejoicing. That we might rejoice now through song and that we might rejoice as we come to the table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.